This is RCT number 17, The Incarnation. RCT stands for the Roman Catechism of Trent. We are in pages 44 to 46. This is the Creed, Article 3, Part B. Let us begin in prayer. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris, Ephidii, Spiritu Sancti. Amen. O Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us of all impurity and save our souls, O good one. In nomine Patris, Ephidii, et Spiritu Sancti. Amen. And just a couple announcements for you here. First of all, thank you so much for praying originally for the health of my mother and now the repose of her soul. Eternal rest grant unto her, O Lord, and may perpetual light shine upon her. My family of origin and me, we were very overwhelmed in charity of how many people prayed for my mother and our family in that difficult time. And um, sorry to have all the excuses, but I think you, most of you know I was taking care of her. One of the things of being a diocesan hermit is emergencies can kind of bubble to the front and you put other things on the back burner. Um, so thanks for understanding. I certainly think that that time was uh, well spent. I'm going to have a blog post. This is the second announcement here. I'm going to have a blog post called Production Update. I'm going to link that in the show notes, and we're going to keep going on VLX, RCT, and blogs. We are going to get the Sunday Sermon Series going, but it's going to be a little bit morphed because of some things I'm going to explain again in that blog post called Production Update. It's going to talk a little bit about uh, my social life, um, which has been non-existent for three months, by the way, so I have not been ignoring anybody. Um, hopefully, I'm getting back to everybody on text and email, but I haven't seen friends in months. And uh, also, some pilgrimages that you're invited to come on and how I'm going to be doing kind of a different version of the Sunday Sermon Series on these international pilgrimages that is not paid for by my donors, but it's going to be paid for by the people leading these pilgrimages. Again, which you're invited to, and I will link that. Okay, so let's look at the Roman Catechism of Trent. We're in number 17. Today we're looking at the Incarnation. And as I said in the first couple series of, or first couple episodes of Roman Catechism of Trent, this is the only infallible catechism ever made. Um, and we've talked about some of the errors in some other more modern catechisms that uh, really make this the most reliable. It's not that I'm more reliable than other catechism series, it's that this is the most reliable one out there. Okay, so the Incarnation, we read this today in the Roman Catechism of Trent, page 46. In the Incarnation, some things were natural, others supernatural. In this mystery, we perceive that some things were done which transcend the order of nature, some by the power of nature. Thus, in believing that the body of Christ was formed from the most pure blood of his virgin mother, we acknowledge the operation of human nature, this being a law common to the formation of all human bodies, that they should be formed from the blood of the mother. Me here, jumping in a little bit early here. What I just read you reminds me of something from Sheldon Van Auken. Sheldon Van Auken was a pagan converted by C.S. Lewis, who later wrote a book about him and his wife called Severe Mercy. Many of you have probably read that. Well, he also wrote a poem about Mary, and one verse says this. First person is Mary is saying, My arms held heaven at my breast, not wine, but milk made blood in which no mothering doubt, prefigured patterns of the pouring out, O lamb to stain the world incarnadine. 
That is probably one of my favorite lines from any poem, that milk made blood, in which no mothering doubt, prefigured patterns of the pouring out. What that's saying there is Mary pouring out her life to Jesus, nursing him, was a prefiguring of him pouring out his supernatural life and his most precious blood on the cross. And that obviously reminds me of what we just heard in the RCT about how the precious blood first was formed from the blood of a mother. And this is because Christ shares his divine nature with God the Father, but he also shares that human nature with the Immaculate Virgin Mary. You can see right there why it's so important she had to be sinless. Because just as Christ shares his divine nature with God the Father, so also he shares his human nature with Mary. Both had to be totally sinless. Now there's a scholastic phrase that grace builds on nature without destroying it. That phrase right there helps us to avoid all of the Christological errors of the first 500 years of Christianity and all of the Christological errors of the last 500 years. Now, because most of the Christological errors of the early days, those first 500 years of Christianity, most of the errors emphasize the divinity of Christ to the detriment of his humanity, you know, just like docetism, docetism, that's the heresy that Christ's body was not human, but either a phantasm, and therefore his sufferings were only apparent. Again, that's heresy, that's error, kids, that's wrong. Of course, his sufferings were real. But then most heresies today, it's very interesting, most of the heresies the past 500 years, especially the last 100 years, emphasize the humanity of Christ while downplaying his divinity. So you have to look at this and just say, why is it so hard for Catholics, all Christians, to just admit Christ is 100% human and 100% divine? Personally, I think this is hard because heretics admitting that Christ is 100% human and 100% divine, that would also mean we have to be holy by God's grace. And honestly, people are too addicted to their sins back then and now to want to believe in that. So back to that phrase, grace builds on nature without destroying it. That means a lot of things, but I want to point out uh, just one connected to another. And that is this, that the incarnation shows that Jesus, Jesus wasn't just every man, but he was a real man with a real human attitude because he was 100% human. And we have to remember that just because he was God, that didn't crush his human way of life. So notice, this is going to sound a little off topic for a minute, but it's going to come right back to what I just said. Notice when liberal Catholics joke about an irreverent priest or nun, they usually make an excuse for him and they'll say something like, well, you have to remember that priest is human or yeah, that nun is human. Okay, that's true, but People say that as if we priests, by being quote-unquote human, somehow that means we're supposed to be sloppy or silly or risque in our humor or even sinful. But wait a minute. Here's a problem in that. God created Adam and Eve in original justice. That means God created Adam and Eve in total holiness. So therefore, human does not equal sinful. Think about that. Human does not equal sinful. When people say something to me like, hey, just let down your hair and be human, what they really mean is let your hair down and show your sinful humanity to us so we feel better about our own sins. No thanks, I've sinned enough in my life and I want to be holy now. But most importantly, think about this. The most human, this word everybody loves, the most human people who ever lived, except not in quotes, the most human people who ever, who ever lived were Jesus and Mary, 
and they never sinned. So why do modernists think that this phrase, hey, be human, why do they think that means be sinful? It doesn't, and it never has, and it never should. Because you see, Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, and he never sinned. And in fact, he was never sloppy or silly or risque in his humor. Now, does that mean he was boring? Of course not. The Bible is the most read book in all of history. And somewhere behind that is the lives of the saints. So grace lands, so to speak, on the saints without crushing their personalities. As I said earlier, the most human people who ever lived were Jesus and Mary, and they never sinned. So we need to get it out of our mind that being human equals sinning. It actually takes away from our humanity every time we sin. Not only does it take away from our attempts to cooperate with grace, which the church fathers describe as divinization, it not only sin not only takes away from divinization, it also harms our human faculties. And this is why that line is so important in all of theology, in scholastic theology, that grace builds on nature without destroying it. You know, there's a beautiful phrase. It's attributed to C.S. Lewis, but I think it came from one of the church fathers who first wrote that the Son of God became the Son of Man so the sons of men could become sons of God. The Son of God became the Son of Man so the sons of men could become sons of God. Okay, and then the Catechism continues, But what surpasses the order of nature and human comprehension is that as soon as the Blessed Virgin assented to the announcement of the angel in these words, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word, Luke 1.38, the most sacred body of Christ was immediately formed, and to it was united a rational soul, enjoying the use of reason, and thus in the same instant of time he was perfect God and perfect man. That this was the astonishing and admirable work of the Holy Ghost cannot be doubted. For according to the order of nature, the rational soul is united to the body only after a certain lapse of time. Again, and this should overwhelm us with astonishment, as soon as the soul of Christ was united to his body, the divinity became united to both. And thus at the same time his body was formed and animated, and the divinity united to body and soul. Hence, at the same instant, he was perfect God and perfect man, and the Most Holy Virgin, having at the same moment conceived God and man, is truly and properly called Mother of God and man. Okay, me here. So, you know, the only line that abortion advocates seem to know from St. Thomas Aquinas is about the quickening of the soul, how St. Thomas Aquinas says it's infused into the body a few weeks after conception. You ever hear that? Let me say that again. Even Planned Parenthood will quote St. Thomas explaining that the soul is probably infused into the body a few weeks after conception. And you know, let's be honest, here the Catechism does give a little nod in that direction of Aquinas in saying that the rational soul is united to the body only after a certain lapse of time. Listen exactly to what I read again. According to the order of nature, the rational soul is united to the body only after a certain lapse of time. Now, should that threaten us pro-lifers? Should we be a little bit worried about that? No, because I'm going to explain two extremely important things, and you have to kind of keep this not just on, in, your, on your, in your theological pocket, but also your bioethics pocket, because, again, how many people in Planned Parenthood somehow seem to quote this line from, from Thomas Aquinas? I'm not kidding. You can, you can find this quote on a lot of abortion advocate websites. But here's two extremely important things that you should keep um, on the back burner to explain to people. First, that certain, quote, lapse of time, that is not named in the Catechism, 
So we don't know exactly how long that is between conception and ensoulment. In other words, the time from conception to ensoulment could be just one second long. It could be two seconds. It could be a millisecond. That's important to remember. It doesn't actually, this infallible catechism doesn't tell us how long that is. And number two, the fact that St. Thomas Aquinas thought it was longer than that, namely a few weeks, that can be forgiven him because he didn't have genetics. You see, I think that genetics proves that conception is the only rational, rational time for ensoulment. Why? Because in conception, that's the only aspect of embryonic development that is different in kind, not degree. That's another Thomistic term, kind and degree. What do I mean by that? Well, you got 23 haploids meeting 23 haploids, creating an unrepeatable individual at 46 chromosomes at the very moment of conception. That means that's the only non-sliding scale aspect of prenatal or even postnatal development. Everything else is on a sliding scale, and it wouldn't make sense to have ensoulment at a sliding scale. But Thomas Aquinas didn't know about genetics that genetically you have an unrepeatable human individual at the very moment of conception with 46 new chromosomes that's never been seen and will never be seen again. Okay, and also let's consider this. Even though Christ is not like all of us in everything, just, just like how he's totally different from us, that we are sinners, and he's not a sinner, still we have to recognize he is the archetype of humanity in nearly everything. And so the fact that the Catechism explains that his soul was immediately put into his body, I would personally say, and this is my opinion, this isn't from the Catechism, I would personally say, just combining my knowledge of genetics and my knowledge of theology, which I admit is limited, I would personally say, though, if you look at these two with clear eyes and evidence, this lends itself to the suggestion that with Christ as the archetype of all humanity, Christ getting his soul at conception suggests we do too. Let me say that again. The Catechism just said Christ got his soul at conception. We know that conception is genetically the only black and white big difference in prenatal development. Therefore, I think we can come to the conclusion ensoulment for all of us happens at conception. Probably if you're listening to this series, that's not a big shocker. You probably always believe that combining your own knowledge of theology with genetics. But I just want to give you a little fodder to answer Planned Parenthood who quotes St. Thomas Aquinas out of context and the only line they ever know from him. So isn't that amazing right there that Christ has, it's, it's true, Christ has a created soul and a created body. God the Father made that body, God the Son made that body, and God the Holy Spirit made that body. That's pretty amazing. That means Christ created his own created soul and his created body, even though he, God the Word, is in eternity, but in time was created a real human soul. So listen again to what I just quoted from the Catechism about four minutes ago. As soon as the Blessed Virgin assented to the announcement, the most sacred body of Christ was immediately formed, and to it was united a rational soul enjoying the use of reason. Okay, so there we have that the first mystery of the rosary, that's the Annunciation, is also the incarnation, both of the most sacred body of Christ being immediately formed in zygote form at that instance. But the Catechism also just told us at that very same moment, quote, it was united to a rational soul, end quote. So it sounds to me like all life begins at conception, 
including in an exemplary way the humanity of Jesus on earth, even though, of course, his divine life is obviously from all of eternity. So biologically, we Catholics know a new individual begins at conception. Yes, it's true that theologians can debate the time of ensoulment, but I believe genetics suggests that that could only be one time, namely conception, as it's the only black and white aspect of perinatal, prenatal, embryonic development, not a gray aspect of sliding scale development. And the catechism produced under Pope St. Pius V continues, This the angel signified to her when he said, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Most High. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 32. The event verified the prophecy of Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Isaiah 7.14. The catechism continues, Elizabeth also declared the same truth when being filled with the Holy Ghost. She understood the conception of the Son of God and said, Whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Luke 1.43. As the body of Christ was formed of the pure blood of the Immaculate Virgin without the aid of man, as we have already said, and by the sole operation of the Holy Ghost, so also at the moment of his conception, his soul was enriched with an overflowing fullness of the Spirit of God and a superabundance of all graces. For God gave not to him as to others adorned with holiness and grace his Spirit by measure, as St. John testifies in John three thirty four, but poured into his soul the plenitude of all graces so abundantly that of his fullness we have all received, John 1, 16. Although possessing that spirit by which holy men attain the adoption of sons of God, Christ cannot, however, be called the adopted Son of God, for since he is the Son of God by nature, the grace or name of adoption can, on no account, be deemed applicable to him. Okay, just a couple thoughts from me. So notice right there that even the created soul of Jesus, not just him and his divinity, but even the created soul of Jesus had the Holy Spirit to an infinite degree. That can't even be said of the saints. The created soul of Jesus had the Holy Spirit to an infinite degree. And that is why we, as we aspire to sanctity, we can enjoy the status of being adopted sons of God. Is that what Christ is? No, no, no. He's the natural born son of God. And the eternal word is God himself. So notice, this should be obvious to everybody. Jesus is not the adopted son of God. He is the natural son of God. And then a little bit of a note on Mary and the moment of the Annunciation. You know, Father Ripperger talks a lot about how St. Simeon told Mary, Mary holding the newborn in the temple, St. Simeon, according to the church fathers, told her all the sufferings Jesus would endure. I believe that, but I also believe the mystics say that long before that, not long, nine months before that, right before Mary assented to the incarnation at the, at the Annunciation, the Marian mystics, the saints of the church, say that she was even given a, a moment right before the incarnation to see all, or some, of the sufferings that Jesus would undergo. And she still said yes. Okay, and then the RCT continues. This is the last section for today. How to profit by the mystery of the incarnation. These truths comprise the substance of what appears to demand explanation regarding the admirable mystery of the conception. To reap from them abundant fruit for salvation, the faithful should particularly recall and frequently reflect that it is God who assumed human flesh, that the manner in which he became man exceeds our comprehension, 
not to say our powers of expression, and finally, that he vouchsafed to become man in order that we men might be born again as children of God. When to these subjects they shall have given mature consideration, let them, in the humility of faith, believe and adore all the mysteries contained in this article, and not indulge a curious inquisitiveness by investigating and scrutinizing them, an attempt scarcely ever unattended with danger. Please say an Our Father for me at benedictio deum et patentis, Patris et Spiritus Sancti, descendit super vos, et maniat semper. Amen.